as we've been walking through the story of Genesis and getting into the life of Abram, we've had some scenes of action where Abram leaves and, and, uh, and you know, he has conflict with, his guys have conflict with Lot's guys, and then he goes and rescues Lot when the, all the kings uh, battle. That happens last time. And then in chapter 15, what we're going to look at today, sort of the story outside pauses, and we get this we get this scene that's just a conversation between God and Abram. This interaction between the two of them that is in some ways laying the foundation for all the rest of Abram's life with God. And it is a, it is a challenge. It's a moment where Abram is being called to trust God in a different way. And it's a, it's a moment where God is choosing to show Abram how he can trust him. Show him in what way he is trustworthy. So that's what we are looking at today. Let's hear a reading from Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the Lord's message came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what will you give me since I continue to be childless and my heir is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram added, since you have not given me a descendant, then look, one born in my house will be my heir. But look, the Lord's message came to him. This man will not be your heir, but instead a son who comes from your own body will be your heir. The Lord took him outside and said, gaze into the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, so will your descendants be. Abram believed the Lord and the Lord credited it, credited it, it to him as righteousness. The Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, by what can I know that I am to possess it? The Lord said to him, Take for me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram took all these for him and then cut them in two and placed each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun went down, Abram fell sound asleep, and great terror overwhelmed him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will execute judgment on the nation that they will serve. Afterward, they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will return here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its limit. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, a smoking fire pot with a flaming torch passed between the animal parts. That day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, 
the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, we still our minds and hearts and open ourselves up to you. By your spirit, would you speak to us individually about your word as we prepare to listen corporately? Father, we struggle to trust you. We want to trust you. We maybe sometimes feel the burden of expectation to trust you in a certain way. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would allow us to stand next to Abram, to ask the questions with him, and to see the way you prove yourself. Have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure there is a sort of cliche, overarching, generic idea that captures the the Christian life better than trust. Than trust. What What does it mean to trust God? What does it look like? We have these concepts of of faith and trust and belief, and, and they all sort of interchange, don't they? Sometimes it seems like we're talking about understanding certain ideas about something that we can't quite see. Sometimes we feel like we're talking about taking risks and, and, um, and putting ourselves in a place of vulnerability. Sometimes it feels like we're talking about the great hymn we sang this morning, I need you every hour, every hour. I think maybe some of us feel the expectation that at a certain point we'll reach a level spiritually where trust just is in our life, where it just comes automatically, like like the way we sort of trust the chairs we're sitting in. We don't really think about it. Maybe, maybe. I haven't gotten there yet. (laughs) And Abram hadn't gotten there yet. As a matter of fact, the story that we see in Abram's life in chapter 15 is so comforting to me. You guys know this if you've heard me preach more than three sermons. I kind of love the constant failures of the people in the Bible. I love their constant struggle because it's my story. I just see it again and again on every page. I'm so grateful for it, that God is so patient and consistent with his people, giving them opportunities. Abram, just in the last scene that can, you know, right, our 
passage starts with, after these things. What were these things? Abram won this miraculous battle against all these kings. The Melchizedek comes and blesses him. Abram turns down an opportunity to make a military alliance. You know, he's, he remains pure. After these things, God comes to him and, and tells him, you can trust me. He gives him this promise. Your reward will be great, and I am your shield. Now, we don't hear it in the English, but when Melchizedek blessed Abram, he said, it's God who has delivered you. And that word delivered in Hebrew is the word migin. And then when God comes and says, Abram, I am your shield, it's the word magen. And so any Hebrew reader, Hebrew speaker would see, oh, this is God directly connecting just personally to Abram. Hey, I'm the one who delivered you in that battle, and I will continue being your shield. You can trust me. Now, I think sometimes with government or other people in authority, the moment we start to question trust is when somebody says, you can trust me. <laughs> We're like, why'd you need to tell me that? Uh, <laughs> uh, but that's essentially what God is saying to Abram. And so that starts this cycle that we're going to go through twice in this passage. God makes a promise to Abram. Abram immediately questions it. And God proves himself or offers a proof that Abram can trust or not. And then it happens again. So let's look at this. The first promise, the first offer, we, we hear it as generic. Your reward will be great. Your reward will be in great abundance. Abram intuitively knows this is about my offspring. This is about my heritage, my line, my, my heirs. This is, this is about that promise that, that I'll be a great nation, that one day um, the, the, there will be so many of us like the sands of the seashore, God said earlier. So God repeats the promise. This is maybe the third time he's repeated it in Genesis. And Abram's like, okay, can we talk about this? <laughs> A lot of time has passed. I've traveled all over the place. I've fought battles. And it's like nothing seems to be happening between me and Sarah, my wife. She's not pregnant. How can I be a great nation? Do you have some other plan? You know, is it one of the guys who is part of my troop here that's going to be my heir? Struggling with trust, I, I, I think, is something that um, we carry a lot of guilt about. And I think that's because a lot of the time when we struggle with trust, we, uh, we take that anxiety and it comes out in, in well, in unhealthy ways. Right? We may be struggling to trust God, but, but rather than just going directly to him with it, we fake it. Rather than just going directly to him with it, we start blaming him for things. Rather than going directly to him with it, we start doing certain things in our life that are unhelpful to us or to the people we care about. This, this is what happens when we're struggling with trust. We, we let things go cold. It may be that in your own life, you've had seasons where at the very beginning, you had some questions about, is God going to take care of me in this or that circumstance? 
And when it didn't seem like he was, the way it did for Abram, you stuffed it down. And what happens when we do that is our love for the Lord starts to grow cold, actually. We just distance ourselves. I don't want to talk about this. And the relationship starts to separate. That's not what Abram does. He has an honest response. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens with these amazing phrases, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And, you know, the people who are blessed are the last people, you know, the, anyone would expect to be blessed. You know, those who are hungry or those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, depending on which gospel you're reading. You know, he's, he's blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit. Who, no, these people don't seem blessed. They seem like not blessed. Like you just defined not being blessed. And Jesus says this, and, and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the Matthew version of the Beatitudes, and that phrase to me, I, I suppose it could mean a lot of things, but here, here's where my brain always goes immediately. Blessed are you who are discontent with the way things are. You're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. In other words, you don't, you don't see it right now. In your whatever, your own little world or globally or somewhere in between. You're struggling to see it. You're, you're not content. Blessed are you, Jesus says. And in that, he's inviting us to do what Abram does. Like, go. Talk it through with God. Be audacious. Lord, I'm struggling with this. That's vulnerability before God. I think that there's a trust that comes on the other side of doubts that's not possible before we go through that process. In, uh, in the fall of 2019, many of you know this story, uh, I hit sort of in my own sort of emotional health, my own spiritual sort of sense of stability, I hit a, a low point in my years as the pastor of this church. Now, um, I think from a distance I can say, wow, God was doing so many good things. And, um, you know, so I don't want anyone who was around during that time to think, well, was he that str struggling with me? You know, that's not what I mean. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, there, were, there, had been, there had been a number of really painful things that had happened in the staff and leadership, um, some really sad stuff. And there had been, in the year or two before that, we had had this wave of kind of young couples, young families uh, who were kind of, we, we had, you know, like written them down on, you know, in leadership meetings as like, these are the future elders and leaders of the church. And, and then none of them could afford to stay in the Littleton area. Just like this wave of people. We had five or six families who all in the course of a few months had to move away, move far away to where they could afford a home. Um, and uh, there, you know, other things too, and you know, some, some interrelational stuff for me. And I hit this point one day, uh, I'm sitting at my desk and the way, the way I've described it before, but it's the best way I can think of it, it was like uh, 
somebody had a had an invisible bucket of liquid discouragement and just doused, just like I just, and you know I'm in the I'm supposed to be working on a sermon, <laughs> and I just pushed back from my desk and walked out. You know there's a there was a park near the office, and I was gonna go walk the park, but I I actually. I had this feeling like I don't even know if I'm going to come back to my office. Like that's just, in that moment, it was so thick and strong. And so I, you know, I'm in the park and I'm luckily, you know, I get embarrassed to pray aloud if there's other people, but there weren't people close enough. And I'm like shouting like, God, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, this, this stinks. I just need you to show me somehow that you're still in this, that you still, you still want me to be doing this. You still want this little congregation to carry on. And you know that this happens for pastors. We, you know, we don't know where we end and the church begins. We kind of get confused. Um, so it was all overlapping, I was struggling with it. God, just show me, show me something. I had that Abram moment in the park and I was mad. I was sad. I was depressed. I, like, What's, so I'm, I'm shouting, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That, that meant something different to me in that moment. But Jesus has this promise, and it, it also sounds cliche sometimes. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Like, what a, what a, what a huge promise that actually can lead to more discouragement if, if you don't find what you think you're looking for, you know? Or if God responds in a way that's different than what you were expecting. I, I'm not sure what I was expecting that day in the park. Some of the problems felt like they couldn't be fixed, frankly. So I look back at this story and I, want, I see how God works to prove his trust to Abram and um, it's familiar to me. Right after Abram says, God, how? Like, I don't have a kid. How? How, how will my reward be great? God says, a, a son will come from your own body. Like, let there be no mistake about how this is going to happen. Even though you think you're old, you think it's not possible. Let there be no mistake. God, in his word, speaks something. And when God speaks something, the, the book of Genesis says things come into being. This is how God acts. In fact, Abram is viewed as this paragon of faith, especially because of this passage later on. Abram believed and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. That is such a hard credited it. That's a tongue twister for me. Um, but, the, you know, he believes and God does this. So Abram, is, he, we look at him as this friend of God, this mountain of faith. Well, how did it all start? It started because God spoke to him. And when God speaks, he creates something in us. That's how the Bible starts. God says, let there be light. And there's light. God speaks things into existence. That's what he does. And then he takes Abram outside. And as if Abram wasn't sure what God was talking about, he says, look at the stars. Look at the stars. Now, all, all my life I've read that bit about look at the stars and, and look at the sand, which he said a couple chapters ago. And as like, 
well, yeah, obviously, there's lots of stars and lots of sand. And he's saying, you'll have lots of descendants. It's simple, sim simple math. But when I read this in this context of God creating and Abram struggling with his doubts, well, this isn't the first time stars have come up in the Bible, actually. On day four of creation, God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. And in fact, the way day four is written is to make sure that every reader, anyone who's hearing that, who's familiar with all of the pagan religions at the time that the Israelites are hearing this, and who think that those things might probably be gods, they're probably the ones who are responsible for our fertility, which is really important to Abram at the moment, or weather, you know, weather patterns, and when the moon's full, the tide's up, and you know, when the, when the, when it's cloudy, the Crops don't grow as well, and whatever, all that stuff. Like, you know, the stars in the sky. Um, <laughs> so, so, Abram is called to come out and look at the stars. And I think in that moment, what God is doing in him is saying, I made that. Do you guys, the staff and elders just this week were in, uh, in the mountains, and we got to be far away from city lights. And the place we were staying had this uh, like tall tower in it, and we called it the crow's nest uh, or the treehouse, uh, other names. And there's a telescope that didn't work, but you could just go outside and look up in the dark of night and see more stars than are possible. You know, a hundred times more stars than you can see here in Littleton. And you, you look at the stars in a moment like that, and one, you, it, their beauty is overwhelming, their power, and you feel so small, right? And God is saying, look, I made that. Friends, creation itself is God's proof of his trustworthiness. When, when you are struggling in this way, Bring it, like step one, bring it honestly to God. He loves that. I had a theology professor in college who's, you know, we're all thinking about like which words are appropriate for us to use. You know, I still toe the line in that. Um, but, you know, was, we were talking about cussing to a theology professor. He said, well, if there's anyone you can cuss in front of, it's God. In other words, like be fully honest. Bring yourself completely before him. That's step one. And step two, look at what he has made. I mean, look at a pine cone, if that's what you need to start with. Consider the intricacy of it. God proves his trustworthiness to us in his creation. Theologians call this general revelation. And so, looking at the stars, Abram believes, and God credits that to him. As righteousness. There's been so much ink spilled about what on earth that phrase means. Abram believed. So did God give him something because Abram did something for God? Or what, like, how are we to understand that? Um, you know, Paul uses that as proof that it's faith without works that's our salvation. And, and James uses that combined with Abram's acts of trust later as proof that faith without works is dead. And we don't know what to make of this. Sentence. There's an Old Testament scholar that did a study of 
the word righteousness throughout the Old Testament and, you know, the contrast, righteousness and wickedness. And he said, in general, it seems to be that the righteous are those who disadvantage themselves for the sake of others, whereas the wicked are those who disadvantage others for the sake of themselves. It's a pretty nice distinction. So God credits Abram's trust to him as righteousness, and it doesn't really fit that nice little distinction, does it? Well, there's no others on scene here. So what do we make of this? How does it apply here? I think we need to go a layer deeper, because I agree with that scholar. I think that's right. I think righteousness is the word for right relationship with God and others where we are seeing God and acknowledging him as he really is, and then seeing others and acknowledging them as they really are. We're relating to God in his reality, and we're relating to others in their reality. Friends, that is like, if you really understand who the people around you are, C.S. Lewis says you would either be tempted to shriek in fear or fall down in worship if you really knew the invisible reality of the people sitting around you. The image of God in them. These are immortal creatures sitting around you that one day will glow with such glory that you would fall down in front of them. That's the promise of Scripture about them. So if we know God as he really is and then know people as they really are, then we act accordingly, right? And so Abram here, for a moment, enters into right relationship with God. Isn't that what happens? God says, hey, look at the stars. Like, consider who I am. And in that moment, something clicks into place in Abram's heart and mind, and he trusts And, you know, we could make a lot of theology over God credits it to him as righteousness. But let's just simplify the sentence. God says, yeah, that's that's how it should be. That's what was lost in Eden. Adam and Eve did not trust God. They wanted to compete with him. The serpent convinced them that God did not have their best interest in mind. And for a moment, they didn't trust And we're on a journey back there ever since. And here is the weird good news to me in this story. Right after this, God makes another promise to Abram. And instead of Abram being like, yeah, good, cool, because now I'm in. Like, I trust you. We, We had the star thing. And so, bam, like automatic trust from now on. God right away says, hey, also, so you have a promise of, a, of, heir, of an heir, but you also have the promise of land. This promised land will be yours. And everyone's like, but how? <laughs> like right away, five seconds later, after it's been credited to him as righteousness. <laughs> Thank you, Abram, because we can have that. You guys, I can preach my like I can preach my best sermon and feel like the the yes, everything's in place and I believed the words that I said even. And then walk out and one thing can go wrong and I'm like, ah, how do I fix this?" <laughs> you know? Like the Abram is me and you. <sighs> he struggles with it again. 
How can I know? And so the Lord, this next proof of his trust, how, how God proves that he is worthy of trust, it gets a little weird. This scene gets a little weird. So we've got general revelation, the stars. Yes, we can all kind of relate to that. Now, God says, get some animals, this list of animals, chop them in half, and wait for further instruction. Okay. So that's what Abram does. Now, this fits uh, the other cultures in that we have historical records of other cultures who have covenant ceremonies, these ceremonies between, you know, one king and another king, a greater king and a lesser king. And they would do this ceremony when they're making their alliance with each other. And they would take animals and chop them in half. And that would create a nice wedding aisle for their, you know, kingdom marriage. All right. And they walk through it together. I'll tell you what that means in a second. So it's maybe not as weird to Abram as I'm making it sound. But what's interesting is right away, it says Abram has to fight off birds of prey who want to come and eat the carcasses. I've never thought about that. I've just thought, well, obviously you got dead animals, so the vultures show up. But like, why include that detail? This throughout scripture, birds coming and plucking away something that's valuable is a symbol of really the enemy, our spiritual enemy, plucking away our trust. Jesus uses this story in, the, in one of his famous parables, the parable of the sower. He talks about a sower walking along, sowing seed, and it falls on four different types of soil. But, but the one that is the seed really does the least for the soil is the hard-packed soil. And what happens? The seeds never take root, and the birds come and pluck it away. I wonder if Jesus was somehow referring back to this. He knows these stories really well, <laughs> turns out. So Abram has to fight these things off. It's almost a, a, it's a symbolic of the, the wrestle of trust that he himself is still experiencing in that moment. And then God's word comes to him again. And this is where maybe it really does feel strange to Abram. I, I don't know if the animals thing felt strange or not. But in God's proof of his trust, he says... So your offspring, um, before they get this land, they're going to be conquered by this other nation. They'll be slaves for a quick 400 years. And then they'll come back and they'll have to fight and take this land. But like, wait, <laughs> do, do any of us think in that timeline? When you think about whether things are going well or poorly for you in your life, do you think about your great, 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 great grandchildren and like how the things that God's saying to you are about them? What a challenge to trust. We're so immediate. If God makes me a promise in January, I hope it's done by the end of January. Very short memory to these things. What a challenge God is giving Abram. He, he, and remember the first readers of this are the people who were slaves in Egypt. So they, even though it's a trust challenge for Abram, it's a trust supporter for them. Oh, that, that's us. We're, we were just slaves. God made this promise that it would go like this so long ago. Maybe we can trust his word too. It's a long, hard road to fulfillment. But now let's get back to this ceremony. Remember the two kings who are making an alliance. 
And usually what would be asked in this ceremony is the weaker of the two kings, the one who had been conquered or who was, you know, basically saying, I will serve your kingdom so you don't crush us. What he would be asked to do is walk the aisle between the carcasses as a, as a way of saying, may it be unto me as has been to these animals if I break the promises I'm making today. That's so, like, may I be chopped up like these animals if I break my vow that I'm making. So Abram sets out the animals like darkness and terror overwhelm him. It gets so dark, he can't see anything. I imagine darkness that feels like fog, you know, fog with no light. You've just, there's nothing. You can't see your hand in front of your face. That's what's happening. And then he sees this, again, a strange image to us, a smoking fire pot and a torch, a burning torch. And again, in ancient cultures, these were symbols of things that actually drove away witches. <laughs> you know, certain, certain types of like feared women who would curse people, I guess. I, that's what I read. Okay. We could maybe research that more. But these lights in the darkness, without question to Abram, represent God himself, God's presence. And Abram is standing there and he sees the lights. And the lights walk through the carcasses to Abram. Do you guys see that? Abram doesn't go through them. The, the, the symbol of God passes through the carcasses saying to Abram, I am the God who created the stars and may it be unto me as to these animals if I don't uphold this vow that's being made here today. Amazing. Amazing. In Scripture, I don't know if anyone is more famous for their doubt than who. who when I say the word doubt, what name comes to your mind, Bible people? Thomas. Thomas, yes. No one's more famous for their doubt than Thomas. I mean, we gave him a nickname, a mean nickname, Doubting Thomas. Like, I don't know how aware he is, you know, in, in, the, you know, in, in glory with, with Jesus of that, but like... That's got to be a bummer. <laughs> like, oh, still calling me Doubting Thomas. Thanks. Um, but so why is he called Doubting Thomas? When Jesus is resurrected, some of the disciples have seen Jesus. And Thomas is like, this has hurt too bad. <laughs> like, unless I, see, unless I see the wound in his side and his, in his hands, I don't believe that he really resurrected. And of course, in a famous scene, Jesus comes to him. And says, Thomas, come here. Come here. Re it's, the Greek says, reach out your finger and touch my hand. Reach out your hand and touch my side. What does Thomas feel? He feels evidence that Jesus' body was ripped apart to uphold the promises that God made to Abram millennia ago. That's what Thomas sees. And in that moment, he calls, he calls Jesus the name that Abram calls God. My Lord, my God. You're him. You're him. Jesus took it on himself. God proves his trust to us in weird ways. That day in the park, 
I'm shouting at God. God, give me a sign. Give, show me something. I think, I think I was probably hoping that like a thousand people would show up to church the next week, you know, or something. Like, or a publisher would say, hey, I found your blog. What? We'd like you to write the next great Christian bestseller. <laughs> I don't know what I thought. I don't know. I don't know what I expected. Two days later, I go to this Bible study at the Windermere Apartments. It's a senior living place. And um, this is uh, September, October. My birthday's in February. Hint, hint. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this lady gives me a, a gift and says, I realized I missed your birthday. Like, it's October. Um, <laughs> but okay, she's never, never known my birthday as far as I know. And so I, I unwrap it and it's, you know, it's like a, it's a cheesy Christian mug. And yeah, and, uh, and it has the verse on it that I'm about to preach that coming Sunday. Like, what? So that just, that stunned me. That just stunned me. Absolutely. A couple of days later, I'm in the park, and it was as if God was like rearranging my mind and heart about how to quote unquote measure success in the church. It's not about how many people or fame or all of that stupid stuff that we get caught up in, but is the gospel of Jesus setting people free. Like that's the measurement of it, right? And so my, my joy in who was there and how many of you were here changed. And it like, for the most part, there's times where I fall into the worldly stuff, but for the most part, that's established joy for me. And if that wasn't enough, a couple of months later, I'm preaching a much more obscure passage out of Exodus, the book of Exodus. And someone sends me a gift in the mail the week before. And it's that verse out of Exodus 11, like on this artful little framed thing. Like, what the heck? This, that's never happened to me where the scripture I'm preaching, people are giving it to me the week before. They don't know what I'm going to be saying. I, that wasn't the way I was expecting God to prove his trust, trustworthiness to me. But he does it to you guys. It surprises us. It's... It, like, it can feel like, well, that's not how I wanted you to prove it. But if we ask, he will answer. If we seek, we will find. He's re he's, he is faithful if we come to him honestly to be there near us. I feel scary to say because I know some of you have had times where you feel like you're seeking with all your heart and you're feeling nothing. You're seeing nothing. I know that that happens. And for you, I would take you back to the carcasses cut in two. Because every Sunday, we take a carcass. I hope that isn't unappetizing. <laughs> and we tear it in two, right? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. He was the animals. He proved his, his trustworthiness. Thomas put his hand in his side. And then Jesus said, hey, good for you that you got to see and believe. Blessed are those 
who do not see and trust. This is what we get to see, you all. This is God proving his trust to us. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, that he kept his promises. Even if in your entire lifetime, you don't see the results you're looking to see. Abram, he didn't see it. But this is the ultimate result that we're waiting to see. Let's pray. Lord, as my brothers and sisters come to this table, I pray that we would have a moment under the stars where by your Holy Spirit working in us, you would click things into place and we could experience through Jesus, you saying, that's how it should be. That's right. That's righteousness. And Lord, I pray that as that happens, we would trust your generosity so much that we're able to act in trust toward others the way the righteous do throughout the Old Testament. So have your way, Lord. As we come to the table, work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.